Well, it's great to see everybody this afternoon. I uh, appreciate it. It's always nice when the second day of a conference people show up, because that's uh, better than the alternative. You know, sometimes you, you start out a conference and everybody says, man, I don't need to hear that, uh, and they go golfing or something. Uh, of course, this would be tough weather to golf in. Uh, but anyway, great to see you. I wanted to start uh, uh, today by just making a couple of announcements, if you'll indulge me. Uh, you know, we're just so grateful to Grace Bible Church for having us in. Uh, hopefully you've had the chance to meet my wife, Wendy, out at the resource table. Uh, but, uh, you know, we, uh, we do this for a living, and this is what the Lord's called us to, to preach the gospel. Our ministry, Not By Works Ministries, our mission is the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel. And so we've, in our 23rd year now, um, traveling and proclaiming the good news and teaching on various topics like uh, this topic that we have uh, for this weekend. We also are privileged to serve as the lead pastor at Plum Creek Chapel in the Denver metro area. So if you're ever in Colorado, uh, or as we like to call it, Camerado, uh, come, uh, come see us. And uh, we'd love to have you worship with us on a Sunday or a uh, Wednesday. And I want to thank the great folks there at Plum Creek Chapel for giving us the freedom to travel uh, several uh, weekends a year and, and speak and, and uh, do so under the umbrella of our home church there. So... Uh, a couple of quick announcements for those of you here at the conference in person. By the way, we had almost 300 people live stream last night, so that was wonderful. And um, all of the video, both of the videos from last night and the audio podcast are already available at the Not By Works website, uh, notbyworks.org. I don't know if that's on your sheet. If not, pick up a card at the table. And so if uh, maybe if you missed last night's sessions or if you know someone you'd like to pass them along to, you can just point them to the website there, and there's a banner. Right now, the lead banner in our highlight carousel is the live stream, because we want all weekend for people to know how e easily they can live stream these sessions. Uh, but uh, the next banner, and if you cycle through it, the next uh, slide on the website is a banner that tells you how to get to the videos. So those are already posted from last night. Lord willing, we'll have today's videos posted by the end of the night tonight. And uh, if you're more of an audio person or you like to podcast and just want to listen to them rather than watch the actual video with the visuals, uh, you can get that at any podcast provider, wherever you listen to your podcast, just search for Not By Works Ministries and you'll see them uh, posted there. But for those of you that are here, I wanted to mention a couple of new books. Obviously, we've talked a lot about uh, Spirit of the Antichrist, which just came out March 21st. And uh, this is what we're kind of touching on this whole weekend. Uh, but a couple of other new books that have come out in the last year, uh, one of them is my book, The Top Ten Reasons Some People Go to Hell and The One Reason No One Ever Has to. And this is really a, an apologetic as well as an evangelistic uh, type book that kind of answers the question, what in the world would keep somebody from receiving the free gift of eternal life? I mean, there's nothing more valuable and the greatest need in the world is forgiveness of sin and eternal life. And yet, people reject the gospel. Why is that? So this has 10 chapters on uh, what that is. It's, uh, again, just came out, I think, in 20, uh, either 2020 or 2021. Uh, so pick that up out there and take a look at it. And then uh, we have a devotional book called Weekly Words of Life, 52 devotionals to warm your heart and strengthen your faith. And the idea here is there's 52 short devotionals, most of them two or three pages. You can read them in five minutes. But the idea is you read one per week. It's got a scripture passage at the beginning and then just some uh, thoughts uh, from my heart about those passages. And uh, in the course of a year, you've got 52, one to read uh, each week. So that's out there at the table, too. Those are two of our newest books. And then uh, if you like uh, kind of uh, some of the stuff we're talking about, 
in this conference, my first book on this general topic was called The Great Last Day's Deception, Exposing Satan's New World Order Agenda, and that was 2012, so 10 years ago now, uh, but it touches on some of the same themes that we get into in much greater detail in, uh, in the latest book there, Spirit of the Antichrist. So yeah, I just wanted to mention that mainly, let you know that the videos are available, and uh, we will have all six of them eventually posted here, hopefully by, the, by tomorrow night, uh, as soon as the conference is, is over. So I thought I would begin by uh, just sort of once again laying the foundation in case we've picked up any new folks uh, today, either online or here in uh, the church, uh, laying the foundation for this, this concept. What, what are we talking about when we talk about spirit of the Antichrist? Well, that comes from 1 John chapter 4, verse 3, where we're told uh, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming. Remember, the Antichrist is coming. He will rule the world for seven years in a satanic regime uh, during the 70th week of Daniel, that final seven-year period that puts the uh, end to Daniel's 490-year plan revealed to him in Daniel chapter 9. Um, but he says the Antichrist is coming, but his spirit is now already in the world. In fact, earlier in this same letter, he said many Antichrists have come, even though one Antichrist, capital A, is coming. Paul touches on the same idea in 2 Thessalonians 2 when he's talking about the Antichrist, and he says the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And so basically what we're saying is that for the last 2,000 years, ever since the church age began, really uh, that pivotal moment in human history was Calvary. That's when Satan was dealt the mortal wound. And uh, at that point, uh, he knew his days were numbered. Now, he doesn't have the mind of God any more than we do, so he didn't know that the church age would last 2,000 years so far. And, and if the Lord tarries his coming, it could go on longer. Uh, so he knew that his time was short, and so he began ratcheting up his attempts uh, working with his co-conspirators, demons and humans, which we're going to talk in this session about some of Satan's human co-conspirators, um, he began ratcheting, it up, it, ratcheting up his attempts to take over the world. And so he's been desperately trying uh, for the last 2,000 years. Um, and uh, I believe we are living in the twilight of this attempt of his to take over the world. In other words, I think the, the stage is definitely being set. I was talking to some folks at lunch today about that. And that, of course, I'm not a prophet. I don't claim to have inside information. I'm just sort of reading the signs of the times like everybody else. But it sure seems to me, when I look at what's going on in the world today, and I compare that to God's, the teaching in God's Word, that it can't be uh, much longer. And so we've had 2,000 years of this increasing intensity and this cosmic struggle that we read about in Ephesians 6 and places like that. And it seems like we're getting ever so close to that a pivotal moment. Now we know biblically that prior to that seven-year period, the Lord is going to rescue the church from this present evil age, Galatians 1.4. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we won't have to suffer. Indeed, many Christians have suffered for 2,000 years, unspeakable persecution and martyrdom. And uh, even in the last few years, we've seen in America people beginning to suffer. You know, I, I talk about in my video on persecution uh, that we won't get to in this uh, weekend, but it's in the video series, uh, how in America, Christians and pastors were hauled off and arrested for daring to sing praise songs to God outside in the open air on their church parking lot. <laughs> so don't think it won't happen in America. It's happening all over in other parts of the country, and it's, it's a little slower to come here uh, because of uh, our Christian heritage, but it's happening. And if the Lord tarries His coming, we're going to see 
much worse. So don't think that our belief in the biblical doctrine of the rapture means that we are suggesting that, you know, we're going to be spared any difficulties or troubles or trials or persecutions. In fact, Jesus said just the opposite. He told the disciples in the upper room, in this world you'll have tribulation. Paul said, all who desire to live godly. Uh, by the way, before I finish that verse, how many of you desire to live godly? Okay, well, you might, before you raise your hand too quickly, you might want to remember the rest of that verse. I think it's 2 Timothy 2, 3, 12 will suffer persecution. So if you desire to live godly, you'll suffer persecution. So we, we certainly understand that we're not promised or entitled to uh, avoid the type of suffering that our brothers and sisters in the faith have experienced throughout the church age. Uh, but we are promised uh, emphatically that we will not be here during the great day of the Lord's wrath, that overflowing scourge, the, the tribulation, the 70th week of Daniel, the time of Jacob's trouble, Jeremiah called it, that seven-year uh, period. So this is the whole premise of this book, is that as we look at the characteristics of the Antichrist, we see that Scripture teaches that that spirit of the Antichrist is going to already be at work today. Are we seeing an uptick in some of his characteristics today? And if so, that could easily mean that we're getting closer and closer and closer. Uh, another verse that we looked at last night, the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Remember, the conspiracy that we introduced last night from Scripture, from Psalm 2, is a conspiracy involving Satan, demons, and human agents working together to overthrow God and take over this world for themselves. Uh, and so it's not surprising then that in the latter days we're going to see this deception intensify. That's why I subtitled the book, The, Gra the Gathering Cloud of Deception, and uh, Doctrines of Demons. They're all co-conspirators in this grand conspiracy. Know this, in the last days, perilous times will come, Paul said in his last letter. Going back to 2 Thessalonians 2, we know that the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish. So it's, Satan is the, 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 a liar and the father of lies, and deception is his MO. We're going to talk about how to combat that in our worship hour uh, tomorrow as we close out the conference. Uh, of course, everybody knows Ephesians 6, this great uh, description of our spiritual warfare. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly uh, places. So uh, we are told to be sober and vigilant because our adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Uh, remember Jesus uh, said that uh, the Satan comes to kill, steal, and uh, destroy. So we certainly want to be prepared, as I talked about last night. We don't want to ignore this. We ignore it at our own peril. Uh, we're not suggesting, you know, I did a, a podcast last week called, or actually it aired last week on Lamb and Lion Ministries with Tim Moore called Drip Feed of Dread. And, uh, and I don't, I'm not here to sell fear. I, we're never supposed to be afraid. A fear is not of the Lord. Uh, but there's a difference between being scared and being prepared. And we are told to be prepared, as we looked at yesterday in Proverbs 22, verse 3. So I think uh, it's uh, the job of believers to, to be aware of what's going on around us, to be prepared for what's coming. Uh, yes, we know that, as Paul said in Philippians, to be absent from this body and to be present with the Lord is, is greater by far. Uh, but at the same time, we also know God has a job for us to do. So even though for the believer, death is the golden key that unlocks the riches of eternity, until God's ready for us to come home, we need to be hard at work 
engaging in this battle, prepared for what comes next, rather than just give up. And uh, we can't just give up. We can't just move to a mountaintop and sing kumbaya and wait for Jesus to come. We've got to do battle. And, and the Bible wouldn't talk so much about the spiritual battle that we're involved in if it weren't, if it weren't intended for us to engage uh, in it. And so don't give up. Don't be scared. Don't be depressed. Don't be discouraged. But be aware. And, uh, you know, I've talked to people many times through the years who, you know, who say, I don't want to look behind the curtain. You know, I'd rather just, you know, ignorance is bliss. Yeah, but it's also dangerous, you know. And uh, so we have a job to do. And, you know, we, again, we don't know the Lord's timetable. So we don't know how long it's going to be before he comes back. And, and if he tarries, then we need to think about our children and our grandchildren and what kind of world they're going to be living in and how to equip them uh, in an age of utter deception. Uh, so... Uh, with that, let's kind of dive into what we want to start with in looking at some of Satan's co-conspirators. The first thing you need to understand is that history as we know it is not the truth. We have absolutely been deceived, and particularly in America going back to the turn of the 20th century when uh, the Luciferian Rockefeller dynasties and Carnegie's and others uh, cavorted together and took over key industries in America, particularly higher education, uh, government schooling, medicine. You know, you, you've heard people talk about Western medicine. That's because for 5,900 years, medicine looked one way, and then all of a sudden, about 150 years ago, or 140 years ago maybe, it became all about slicing and dicing and putting chemicals in your body. And now medicine today is completely different from what it was historically and what it was um, you know, in Scripture. In fact, uh, the word sorcery, as I talk about in chapter 9 of the book, is pharmakeia, and it involves the use of chemicals to basically control people. And I'm not suggesting that every drug today is part of some satanic ritual, not suggesting that at all. Um, obviously, we're thankful for certain advancements in medicine in that regard. I mean, how many of you appreciate penicillin? Okay, where would we be without that, right? So, but at the same time, we do need to recognize the history of it. And so that's why that chapter called Big Pharma and Vaccines goes into the history of, of what these companies are all about, where their funding is from. I talked a little bit about that yesterday when we talked about the World Economic Forum. But a lot has changed really in a relatively short time in the grand scheme of 6,000 years of human history. And a lot of what we're being told in our textbooks is history, is not history. It's, uh, it's manufactured history. And so if all you ever do is get your news from mainstream sources or some of the New York City publishing houses, uh, you actually may have been uh, deceived. And, that, and for me, that was one of the biggest uh, eye-openers as I went down this rabbit hole years ago was recognizing that so much of what I had been taught was simply not true. And because I'd never taken the time to read other well-documented books, you know, Journal articles, white papers, declassified documents, leaked documents about these types of things. I had no idea. I just assumed. You know, I just assumed it was. And, and a lot of it, even researchers who, long before me, long before I was even born, that were talking about some of these issues and were scoffed at have now been vindicated just in the last few years. Uh, if we have time in our last session today, uh, by the way, my last session I've just sort of left open. I've got, I think, 300 slides, which obviously we won't get to all of those, but I'm just going to kind of feel my way through and decide which ones to cover in the final session since it's effectively our last session before we get to the solution tomorrow. 
Um, but in that, I'm, I, one of the things I might discuss is false flags, what that is, how it's taught in the American War College, and it's a very common technique going back hundreds of years in military uh, strategy. But uh, an example of something that for years was taught in the textbooks, everybody just assumed it was uh, true, and that is uh, the Gulf of Tonkin. And uh, that's what got us into the Vietnam War and led to the uh, death of 58,000 uh, servicemen. Well, 50 years later, finally, even though many people have been talking about it for years, they released the documents that had been classified and discovered, yeah, indeed, the whole thing was made up. It never happened. It wasn't true. We got into Vietnam War because of a staged, fake event. Check it out. I have a chapter on it or a discussion in it in my chapter on false flags uh, in the book. So these are the types of things that I'm uh, talking about um, that uh, we need to be aware of. So Leo Toll's story, uh, uh, the great Russian writer, one of the greatest authors of all time, but regarded at least as such by many, received multiple nominations for Nobel uh, Prize in Literature from 1902 to 1906 and Nobel Peace Prize nominations in the same time frame. But he said, history would be a wonderful thing if only it were true. Napoleon Bonaparte said, what is history but a fable agreed upon? After World War II, Winston Churchill famously said, history will be kind to me, for I intend to write it. Mark Twain put it this way, the very ink with which history is written is merely fluid prejudice. And uh, Eric Arthur Blair, also known as George Orwell, very much an insider with a lot of inside scoop uh, in his book 1984 said, who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past. So we see... Uh, history being rewritten. Uh, when I was in academics uh, for 12 years full-time, uh, it was the same time we started this ministry as an offshoot of my classroom teaching ministry uh, 23 years ago. Uh, I remember going to an accreditation seminar put on by the Government Department of Education and their Council on Higher Education in America, and I was overseeing accreditation reaffirmation for our school at the time, and at that time, I don't know if this is still the case, I've left academics long ago, but at that time they were requiring that all accredited schools use only textbooks that had been published in the previous 10 years. Well, for a theological Bible college and seminary, that's a bit of a problem because we love to, to read the, the old greats of theology like Walvoord and Pentecost and Ryrie and Gabeline and Schaefer and some of those guys, right? But they were trying to prevent that by saying you could only use textbooks published in the last 10 years. And that's one way of controlling the past, because before long, unless you do the digging and do your research, you're reading an entirely different narrative. One of my favorite uh, television and radio personalities is George Knapp out of Las Vegas. Not sure if he's a believer, not sure if any of these people are believers. I'm just giving you a, some quotes for context. He said, nothing ever changes except the past. George Santayana those who cannot remember the past are condemned uh, to repeat it. I heard Amaryllis Fox on an interview say, history may not always repeat itself, but at the very least, it rhymes. That's, I found out later that's not original to her because I've come across it in several other writers. So, um, you know, good researchers pick up things along the way, and, and, but I just happened to hear her say it. But that is, uh, that is certainly... Uh, Certainly true. By the way, there's a saying in academia, if you borrow from one source, that's plagiarism. But if you borrow from more than one source, that's research. So I've done a lot of, a lot of research uh, 
here in my studies. Um, so here's that uh, Luciferian conspiracy chart. Again, just want to, to really help you kind of see that in your mind that we're dealing with three entities working together toward a nefarious agenda, which is to take over the world. And all of these charts, by the way, that you see are available in our chart book, which you might thumb through out there at the table. That's available digitally. If you like, if you do any teaching or presenting and you want the PowerPoints, we sell it on a thumb drive or in color uh, print. Uh, but so I would like to, what I'd like to do now is diagram out for you my best rendering of what the human component of this conspiracy looks like. Uh, so at the top, you clearly have the Luciferian elite. Now, this is where, for some people, it gets a little bit uncomfortable because this is not the kind of stuff that you think about. It's not pleasant to think about. It's not really on your mind, if at all, very rarely. Uh, but in my world, I study this and think about it quite often, write about it, do interviews about it, and speak about it. But at the top tier, you have roughly six or eight families. Uh, you don't know most of them. We know some of them, but we don't know most of them because they're the ones that are literally communicating with Satan behind the scenes, taking their marching orders from him. The same way that you and I pray to the Lord and uh, communicate with him through reading his word and serve him, they serve the enemy. They serve Satan. That's why they call themselves Luciferians. Um, and so they're getting their marching orders from him. And then they pass that down. Now, a lot of people will say to me sometimes, uh, well, you know, if there's this great conspiracy to usher in a new world order, how come it hadn't happened yet? Well, the answer is in the question. It's, it should be obvious. I mean, Satan is not omnipotent, right? He's not, not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. He's not able to just snap his fingers and make things happen. Ultimately, God is sovereign. God's timetable is what matters most. And so uh, Satan certainly is not for lack of trying. We've seen it particularly again in the last century and a half. We saw it with World War I. Lots of backstory to that that you probably aren't aware of. We saw it coming out of World War I with the League of Nations. We saw it coming out of World War II with the United Nations. And they've been fighting hard ever since. But what we see happening right now, which is why this is so time-sensitive, is things coming to a head. We're reaching a, a, a pinnacle, a climax here of what appears, again, at least from their perspective, that every, it's all systems go. They're pulling out all the stops. They've shifted into high gear. Whatever metaphor you want to use, the Luciferians see an opportunity, and man, they're going all in to make it happen. Now, again, uh, God is sovereign, and, and maybe if he can squelch this, and they may be set back another hundred years. I, I don't know. But, boy, it sure seems like with some of the things we're going to talk about in the second session, like transhumanism, eugenics, depopulation, uh, that they've got pretty much everything they need uh, short of God's supernatural intervention and delay to make this happen. And that's the thing that you need to keep in mind is that, biblically, it's going to happen. Now, I don't understand why God doesn't just wave his hands and say enough and usher in the new heavens and the new earth and put an end to it all. I, I don't know. But God's got a plan, and the Bible clearly reveals that plan. And that plan involves an end times period, where, as I said yesterday, 16% of Bible prophecy 
will be fulfilled, the remaining 16% that hasn't been fulfilled yet. And that involves the rapture, the unveiling of the Antichrist, the signing of the peace treaty, the sealed trumpet and bold judgments, the two witnesses, the abomination of desolation, the battle of Ar or the campaign of Armageddon, as we talked about yesterday, the second coming of Christ, the establishment of the millennial phase of the kingdom, the final battle with Satan, the ultimate re destruction and recreation of this sin-stricken world and recreation and perfect sinless perfection of the new heavens and the new earth. All of that's part of his plan. And part of that that I mentioned just at the beginning is that seven-year period. And we know that that's, that's going to be a time when Satan rules the world through the Antichrist in a satanic tyranny. So it's happening. God says it's going to happen. So when we overlay that with what we see happening in the world at the uh, hands of these human co-conspirators with Satan, it, it certainly follows that it, it could be very soon. Uh, so when we talk about this stuff, this isn't speculation. This is clear biblical teaching. What we don't know is the timing and the specifics and the details, and obviously there's a lot of head fakes and misinformation and disinformation. We're going to talk about that. It's been in the news a little bit lately, hasn't it? Uh, we're going to talk about that in, in, in a little bit. But that's the top tier. Now, the part that gets uncomfortable is when you begin to understand that these are the ones that are literally sacrificing children and drinking blood. And you say, wait a minute, that would never happen. Surely Tucker Carlson would have mentioned that. Okay, well, turn off the TV and then do some research. First of all, ask yourself, what do we know from Scripture? Well, we certainly know that 2,000 years before Christ, they were sacrificing children and drinking blood. Do we think things have gotten better in the 4,000 years since then? Depravity is a degenerative disease. It doesn't self-correct. <laughs> if anything, it's worse. So yes, that's happening. Of course that's happening. And it's sickening. Uh, we don't get into it in the first volume of the book, but in the second volume, and we do touch on it uh, in the video series, in one of the 18 videos, but I'm going to get into it in much greater detail in the second volume, and that is the spirit of perversion. And a lot of what we see happening with the satanic ritual abuse, the child uh, sacrifice and abuse and all of those things that we saw uh, with Jeffrey Epstein and, uh, and Pizzagate and those types of things, snatched from the headlines. That's not, I mean, of course, the mainstream media tries to say, ah, that's all just a conspiracy theory. Well, we know what the word conspiracy theory means from yesterday, don't we? Uh, but no, it's real. And so uh, this, is, this is the top tier. Um, you know, who those families are, uh, you can read... Uh, some of the works like uh, Fritz Springmeier's uh, Bloodlines of the Illuminati, where he traces it back, you know, many, many, many generations into ancient times. But these are the ones that have been in the family line, worshiping Satan from the beginning and trying to help him accomplish uh, his goal of taking over the world. Then at the second tier, we've got in the first place the realm of business and finance. And this is not exhaustive, but it's just to try to give you a little bit of a flavor of kind of how these groups are key part of the uh, arrangement. Um, so it's the International Monetary Fund, all of the central banks, the privately owned Federal Reserve. I'm quite sure that by now everybody in the room understands the Federal Reserve is no more federal than Federal Express. It's privately owned by six families. And that's the reason every time you pull out a dollar bill, it says right on there, uh, Federal Reserve note. It's a debt instrument. This is not money. This is a debt instrument. And so, of course, 
we want to print as much money as we can because every time we print money, and by the way, we don't print our own money, we pay the Federal Reserve to print it, but every time they print it, they get a percentage of the money. We're just borrowing money. We don't print our own money, right? In fact, I, read a, I heard a statistic just this week, and I haven't had the time to dig it up and verify it, but it was on an uh, interview that I was listening to, and it, it actually rings kind of true to me, but again, it's, I haven't fact-checked it uh, just yet, but it was from a trustworthy source that said 40%, 40% of every printed money that in the history of our country, you know, when those printing presses roll and they print off the, dot, the ones, the fives, the twenties, the hundreds, 40% of all the money that's ever been printed in the United States of America has been printed in the last two years under the Biden administration. So it's called qualitative easing, QE1, QE2, QE3, QE infinity. They'll keep printing as long as they want. I mean, man, wouldn't it be great to just make up money out of thin air? Well, the privately owned Federal Reserve loves it because they just get richer and richer and richer and richer and richer and richer. Uh, so things like the World Bank, the Gates Foundation, multinational corporations, big agri, big pharma, big whatever, big auto, you name it obviously the Rockefeller Foundations, but you've also got secret societies that have been a key uh, part of this. Things like the Freemasons, the Illuminati, Skull and Bones. Um, you know, you want to you really know some, you know, sort of anecdotal evidence of how deep the conspiracy goes. Uh, think about uh, the election in 2004. Now, you would think with 300 million people in this country that when it comes down to the final two candidates on the ballot for the President of the United States, what are the statistical odds that A, they would be cousins, George W. and Kerry, cousins, look it up, and secondly, both of them products of skull and bones from Yale. In my video on secret societies in the What in the World's Going On series, eight-part video series, I actually show clips of them during the campaign where they were asked by Chris Wallace or other big-name news uh, people, because it was out there, it was, you, you'd have to look for it, but people were talking about it, and to kind of get ahead of it, they asked, you know, hey, what's a, you know, tell us about Skull and Bones, ha, 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 that, that, you know, that good old boy, like it's Boy Scouts or some backyard boys club or something, and you know, in one video, W says, uh, well, I, I, I'm really not allowed to tell you because it's secret, ha, 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 and then they just kind of move on like putting it out there as if it's no big deal, but it really is a, a big deal. Um, so uh, things like Skull and Bones, other secret societies like Knights Templar, uh, Rosicrucians, Opus Dei. So these are all groups where at this level, by the way, we're probably dealing with hundreds of thousands of people connected to the conspiracy at this level. It's not necessarily the case that everyone involved in all of these things is in the know. It's a very compartmentalized conspiracy. Um, and so if you say, well, my uncle was a Mason or this or that, doesn't necessarily mean they were the ones that were, you know, having secret blood sacrifices by any means. But they certainly, uh, whether they, mo most of them at this level are witting participants, but even the ones that aren't, uh, you need to understand that these groups are very much a part of advancing the agenda. So how do secret societies do that? Well, they, they take oaths, they d demand things from their members. In some cases, they kill them if they don't go along. And then you're controlled. It's all about control. Remember how we said yesterday, Satan doesn't like control. He wants to break the bonds and cast off the cords. Uh, so that's the way they operate their regime. Uh, you think the mafia is bad. Think about the, the Luciferians. I mean, they don't take no for an answer. So at some point, they suck you into these different 
groups, and if you buck the system, uh, then they, uh, they deal with it at that time. And then there's the third level, and, uh, and, and at this level, it's things, first of all, like politics. So the control of national governments, uh, globalist organizations like the UN, other globalist advancing organizations like the Council on Foreign Relations or Trilateral Commission, other secret groups where kings are made and presidents are declared, like the Bilderberg Group, Bohemian Grove, Club of Rome, I mentioned that yesterday in connection to the World Economic Forum. So these are all very key groups. Again, not everybody involved in all of these things uh, is aware of it. But by now, and a lot of the stuff that I'm, I'm saying just for the sake of time, I'm just going to say it. I'm not, uh, I'm not suggesting that you just believe it because I said it. Please do your own research. Be skeptical. I, I want you to do that uh, and study this on your own because otherwise it's too easy to dismiss. Uh, and so I want you to verify what I'm saying. But this is the reason that by now in American politics, everything from the Supreme Court, the White House, the Senate is absolutely 100% controlled. 100% controlled. Congress is a little harder to do. Most of it, I'd say 90% of it's controlled, but because every two years there's 435 new ones, I mean, some of them are reelected, but you always have a few that kind of get in, uh, and, and it's a little bit harder to control every congressional district. It's becoming easier and easier, but every now and then one squeaks through where you've got a maybe a godly Christian man or woman who wants to do, make a difference in this country, and so they decide to run for office. They get some other like-minded people behind them, uh, and, and then first thing you know, they win, and the Luciferians are going, oh, we, we missed that one. It's like trying to keep your finger on a, a dam, and sometimes some of them sneak through. And so, you know, I'm not suggesting that every congressman or congresswoman is controlled, but every senator is, every Supreme Court justice is. You know, ask yourself... Why, if it was just about the right-left paradigm, Republican-Democrat, if that were the case, then really all we would need to do to stem the tide of evil in this country would be to create a scenario where we've got a Republican in the White House, Republican control of the Senate, Republican control of the Congress, and a Republican majority of appointed justices on the Supreme Court. Hello, we've had that many times, and nothing ever changes. Nothing. We've never overturned Roe v. Wade. It was a Republican-appointed justice that gave us gay marriage. It was a Republican-appointed justice that gave us Obamacare. Um, so if you think that somehow the answer to our problems is to just, you know, vote it in, at the ballot box, uh, then you, you, I think you're missing the point. You really don't understand how deep the tentacles of this Luciferian control uh, are. Uh, and we do talk a lot more about that in the book when I talk about uh, fake elections and, you know, the false left-right paradigm. But then you've got the realm of military and intelligence agencies like CIA, FBI, NSA, DIA, black ops organizations. And by the way, this is not just an American conspiracy. It's a global conspiracy. So that would include uh, KGB and uh, Mossad and MI5 and MI6 groups uh, like that. And again, people will say to me, you know, Naively, I have to bite my tongue to keep from laughing, but they'll say, well, you know, my sister, she works at the CIA. She's never told me any of this. <laughs> and I'll say, okay, well, possibly she, yeah, possibly she's uh, not in the know, you know. You know how many thousands of people work in a huge organization like the FBI or the CIA? It's a need-to-know basis. So, and I'm sure they're great people. They're great patriots that are serving their country and helping defend us against threats, foreign threats, which is what the CIA is supposed to do. But you need to understand that it's, uh, it is controlled. Uh, obviously, in the religious world, 
Ultimately, Satan wants to usher in a one-world religion where everybody worships him by worshiping the Antichrist. So you've got the World Council of Churches, the National Council of Churches, the Vatican, uh, obviously overt Satanism, which, again, they love to kind of put up a front with things like Wiccan and, you know, Satan worshipers and stuff. That's just a distraction. The real thing is far worse than you could ever uh, imagine. And then you've got uh, other funds and, and foundations and organizations that are allegedly, uh, you know, benevolent or trying to somehow be uh, giving uh, money to those in need or whatever, things like UNESCO, um, which is the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, uh, peace organizations, uh, you know, Lucius Trust, used to be called Lucifer Publishing Company, founded by Alice Bailey, uh, one of her disciples, uh, uh, or no, Alice Bailey herself, actually, was a disciple of Helena Blavatsky, and she wrote, I talked about this yesterday, wrote a lot of books that she claims were channeled by demons, and uh, in it, she talks about repeatedly the year 2025, and this was back 100 years ago in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, around that time frame. Uh, so at this level, again, you know, who's to say uh, how many? This is just my dead reckoning, but certainly greater than a million people uh, involved in this. And, you know, when you think about this uh, conspiracy, uh, you, sometimes people say, oh, there's no way you could keep this a secret. And then, again, that's a misnomer. People really don't understand. Actually, it's quite the opposite. It's extremely easy to keep a secret. Uh, one of the case in point would be the Manhattan Project that involved tens of thousands of people, and yet nobody knew we were building the bomb for a long, long, long time. So it's, it's much easier to control people and keep things squelched than you might think. Lots of different ways to do it. Uh, money, bribery, blackmail, force, threats. You know, uh, They can arkansas people, which is when they make it look like they committed suicide. We call it arkansas so, uh, again, if you're interested, uh, obviously we get into a lot of this in the book, but we also uh, get into that in the eight-part video streaming series that is from last year called uh, What in the World uh, is Going On. So what I want to do is kind of take a look at some of the co-conspirators, some of the personalities, some of the people that are involved, and actually look at what they're saying, and then piece together uh, what uh, is really been happening. So uh, many of you may not know Saul Alinsky. Um, uh, he was, uh, uh, you know, he heavily influenced former President Barack Obama. In fact, uh, Ob uh, Obama uh, frequently credited him, and uh, he used Alinsky's teachings from his book Rules for Radicals. And uh, Alinsky was a top tier, not top highest level, but an upper level Luciferian part of this agenda, and that's why he dedicated his book to Lucifer. He said in the, in the dedication page, lest we forget an, at least an over-the-shoulder acknowledgement to the very first radical from all of our legends, mythology, and history, and who's to know where mythology leaves off and history begins, or which is which. Notice that little parenthetical there. That's like a wink and a nod at all the other Luciferians that say, we really control history, so really what is history, right? Uh, but he says, lest we forget the first radical known to man who rebelled against the establishment and who did it so effectively that he at least won his own kingdom, Lucifer. So he's dedicating his book to their God. Uh, this is the same guy who in 1972 in an interview with Playboy magazine said, and I've got the exact quote in the book because I went back and 
researched it and found, found the actual quote. Um, he said, quote, I can't wait to get to hell because they're my kind of people. And that was in a 1972 interview with Playboy magazine, about 18 years before Donald Trump was on the cover of his best friend's magazine, uh, Hugh Hefner, Playboy, in 1990. So Saul Alinsky. And then uh, Carol Quigley's a name you should absolutely know. He was the sort of the historian for the Council on Foreign Relations, one of those groups I mentioned in the chart a moment ago that, was, that is to this day very influential uh, with the Rockefellers in helping steer world leaders and decisions and wars and establish uh, geopolitical uh, maneuvers and decisions. Carol Quigley was Bill Clinton's mentor at Georgetown University. In 1991, Clinton named Quigley as an important influence on his aspirations and uh, political philosophy when he launched his presidential campaign in a speech at Georgetown, 1991. At the Democratic National Convention in 1992, Clinton once again uh, gave a nod to Carol Quigley and mentioned him. So this book called Tragedy and Hope was written based on the archived files from the Council on Foreign Relations. Quigley asserts that a secret society initially led by Cecil Rhodes, Alfred Minder, and others had considerable influence over world affairs in the first half of the 20th century. From 1909 to 1913, Milner organized the outer ring of this society as the semi-secret roundtable groups. And uh, by the way, you've heard of People, I talk about this in the Secret Societies video, but people being, being called Rhodes Scholars, right? And whenever they mention that, everybody's like, oh, Rhodes Scholar, they must be important. No, it just means they worship Satan, and uh, you should probably not want a Rhodes Scholar in any position that's going to have anything of influence over you. Uh, but Quigley got in a lot of trouble when he wrote this book um, uh, because he exposed and disclosed a lot of the behind-the-scenes plans of the, the global elite in, this, in, in their attempts to usher in this one-world system. In fact, he, he basically thought that the plan was so far down the road that it was already going to happen. And so at this point, let's just let the cat out of the bag. Uh, it's 1,300 pages and eight pounds of well-documented data from uh, the Council on Foreign Relations. But when it was published, they were so upset about it that they pulled it from all the shelves of the bookstores and publishers, and they, got, they had the printing plates destroyed. Back then, this was way before digital technology, so if you didn't have the printing plates, you couldn't print new copies of it. But somebody had hidden some and kept them back, and so eventually it hit the market, and now you can uh, get it once again. But uh, if you don't have the time, and who does, to read 1,300 pages of detailed expose on what was happening behind the scenes, then there are a couple of Cliff's Notes versions. One of them is Cleon Skousen's The Naked Capitalist, essentially a summary short paperback uh, summary. Actually, you can get it in hardback, but it's in paperback as well. It was written in 1970, and also Gary Allen's None Dare Call It Conspiracy, which also summarizes uh, Skousen's findings. And so let's uh, look at some of the quotes from Skousen. Uh, he says himself, I now am quite sure that tragedy and hope was suppressed, although I do not know why or by whom. See, he's not fully aware of just what the ultimate agenda is. Uh, he believed in what they were doing and hoped to bring it about. This is the new copy that you can now uh, get at Amazon or wherever, uh, pub republished in 2004, the original 1966 version. Uh, also, if you're more of a video or audio type, uh, John Taylor Gatto has an extensive five-hour video series, and it's, it's more of an audio, really. It's just him sitting there talking, being interviewed, so you can 
get as much out of it by just listening as you can watching. But it's kind of describes a lot of uh, the data and details from uh, Quigley's book. Uh, so here's some quotes from Tragedy and Hope. He says, I know of the operations of this network because I've studied it for 20 years and was permitted for two years in the early 1960s to examine its papers and secret records. I have no aversion to it or to most of its aims and have for much of my life been close to it and to many of its instruments. It wishes to remain unknown, but I believe its role in history is significant enough to be known. So that's basically why he wrote the book. Uh, he goes on, its aim is nothing less than to create a world system of financial control in private hands able to dominate the political system of each country and the economy of the world as a whole. Sound familiar? It's basically another way of saying just what Klaus Schwab said in several of the quotes that I gave you yesterday in his uh, new book. Uh, he goes on to describe the new world this way, the individual's freedom and choice will be controlled within very limited, narrow alternatives by the fact that he will be numbered from birth and followed as a number through his educational training, his required military or other public service. Remember when Obama was first elected and he was talking about uh, bringing back conscription? This is all part of their, their plan. Uh, his required military or other public service, his tax contributions, his health and medical requirements, and his final retirement and death benefits. Remember, this is in 1966. And here's the part where they planned the fake left-right paradigm. So this isn't just something that people made up to get you discouraged about the American political system. This is something that was in earnest uh, planned by the elite. He says, quote, the argument that the two parties should represent opposed ideals and policies, one perhaps of the right and the other of the left, is a foolish idea. Instead, the two parties should be almost identical so that the American people can, quote, throw the rascals out at any election without leading to any profound or extensive shifts in policy. So in the book, I give you a lot more details from other sources that talk about this fake left-right <clears throat> paradigm. But again, it should be self-evident by now, right? I mean, why, why it, it's a one-way street, and it doesn't really matter who's in office, nothing of any profound significance happens. Of course, at the philosophical level, every one of us as a Bible-believing Christian and a conservative ought to resonate with the stated platform of the Republicans rather than the Democrats. But that's just words on a paper, right? Uh, and I give this example in the book of when Reagan was elected in 1980. Remember Carter, right before he left office, instituted the Department of Education? So that's not that old of a federal agency. Uh, but it was a key part of their plan to control education. And here we are 40 years later, and we're dealing with CRT, woke you know, stuff, transgender stuff, right? It all was part of their plan. They're very patient in rolling out their plans. So Reagan campaigned against Carter during the campaign, and I've got the exact quote from their the RNC platform. He campaigned, and it was part of the RNC platform, in the abolishment of the United States Department of Education. And all the Christians, yay, yay, rah, rah, Ray Reagan, let's get him in there. And, of course, he got in, and over the next eight years, not only did he not abolish the Department of Ed, but it doubled in its revenue and its funding from the federal government. Nothing ever changes. One quote that I give in there, I forget who said it, but he said, the Republican growl is always worse than its bite. You know? So they'll say anything, but when given the opportunity... They don't do anything. Now, does that mean they're all explicitly and intentionally a part of some 
grand conspiracy? No, but it does mean they're controlled. Many of them are a part of it, but they're absolutely uh, controlled. And I could tell you more stories about that just from people that experienced it firsthand. Uh, but the, a word that we have bandied around a lot is called the New World Order. Um, you know, from the earliest days of our country, Luciferians, Freemasons, and later the Illuminati have been seeking a new beachhead for this satanic agenda to take over the world. It's no accident that with the discovery of America, they saw an opportunity, and they called it the New World. They intended, not the Puritans, not the original pilgrims, but the, the founding ones that came over, intended for this to be the beachhead of the New World Order. And, uh, you know, the word order in New World Order refers to control and power and authority. And so it's amazing how often this comes up uh, in their own literature. And let me give you just a quick survey. Obviously, by now, people probably recognize the frequent references that H.W. Bush made to it. And this is from his State of the Union address in 1991. We will succeed in the Gulf. And when we do, the world community will have sent an enduring warning to any dictator or despot, present or future, who contemplates outlaw aggression. The world can therefore seize this opportunity to fulfill the long-held promises of a new world order. Uh, Richard Nixon, before him, when he met, uh, with, uh, met in China in 1972, February of 1972, said, each of us, speaking to the leader of China, has the hope to build a new world order. Gorbachev said in 1987, we are moving toward a new world order. In his mind, it was communism. Uh, communism is definitely a formidable foe, as is Islam and some of these other movements, socialism, fascism, Nazism, all that, but, it, but it's all just part of the puzzle. It's not the puzzle. And sometimes people that understand that there is an evil force at work trying to bring in a one-world system kind of fixate on one or another of these components of it and don't recognize that that's just one piece of the puzzle. Kissinger said, the new world order cannot happen without U.S. participation as we are the single most significant component. He told this uh, on April 19, 1994 at the World Action Council. Yes, there will be a new world order, and it will force the United States to change its perceptions. Uh, in the second hour, or second session today, we're going to talk more about Klaus Schwab and the transhumanist agenda and see some quotes that sound eerily similar uh, to this idea of changing your perceptions. We actually looked at some of them yesterday, if you remember, how we've got to rethink what it means to be human and rethink what, you know, the social constructs and things. Uh, years later, Kissinger was still promoting the New World Order when he told a CNBC interviewer in 2008 that I think that his, referring to President Obama's, his task will be to develop an overall strategy for America in this period when really a new world order can be created. Not to digress uh, too much, but Obama was absolutely a 100% Manchurian. He was groomed from birth to do this. He came, kind of came out of nowhere. His past is very shady. You can't find a lot of his documentation. Um, and uh, all of a sudden he is placed in office and they really thought that might be an opportunity to really come to fruition this, this one world system plan. But uh, again, it's not monolithic. It's not uh, uh, you know, perfect or easily controlled. And he got in there and he actually, once you become president, you, certain, you have even though you're controlled, and they all have been, you still have a certain amount of power, and you know, your finger's still on the button, so to speak. And so he actually betrayed some of the old guard elite in favor of the, the nouveau riche you know, part of the global elite, and there was some internal struggling and battles. And so 
they had some cleanup to do, and eventually they certainly advanced a lot of their agenda, don't get me wrong, during those eight years, some pretty evil things. But it wasn't, it didn't come about as optimistically from Kissinger's perspective as uh, he thought. Um, Strobe Talbot was, uh, is the president of the Brookings Institution, another globalist think tank located on so-called Think Tank Row in Washington, D.C. And Talbot, uh, who served as the Deputy Secretary of State under President Bill Clinton, told Time Magazine in July of 1992, in the next century, nations as we know it will be obsolete. All states will recognize a single global authority. National sovereignty wasn't such a great idea after all. Richard N. Gardner, former Deputy Secretary of State for uh, Presidents Kennedy and Johnson, said, quote, in short, the House of World Order, by the way, this is in his uh, book, uh, his article that he wrote for the, the Council on Foreign Relations has a magazine called Foreign Affairs, some of you may be aware of it, that really promotes a lot of their globalist agenda, and he wrote an uh, article in 1974 in the April edition entitled The Hard Road to World Order. And this is what he said. In short, the house of world order will have to be built from the bottom up rather than the top down. It will look like a great booming, buzzing confusion. Let's see, what does God's word say? Who's not the author of confusion? God. That means there's only one other option. Who is the author of confusion? Satan. But in the end, but, but an end run around national sovereignty, eroding it piece by piece, will accomplish much more than an old-fashioned frontal assault. See, they've got an agenda. H.G. Uh, Wells, in his book entitled The New World Order, ruled countless people will hate the New World Order and will die protesting it. World War II, again, Winston Churchill, from the days of Spartacus, Weishaupt, Karl Marx, Trotsky, this world conspiracy has been steadily growing. This conspiracy has been the mainspring of every subversive movement during the 19th century. He said, the creation of an authoritative world order is the ultimate aim toward which we must strive. Charles de Gaulle, same era, nations must unite in a world government or perish. I think I mentioned this yesterday. James Paul Warburg said, we shall have world government whether you like it or not, by conquest or by consent. Teddy Roosevelt said, behind the ostensible a government sits enthroned an invisible government, owing no allegiance and acknowledging no responsibility to the people. I talked about Manley Hall's reference to the invisible powers that pull the strings. You see that come up a lot, and you're going to see it in some of these quotes, this idea of an invisible uh, government. Uh, Woodrow Wilson famously said, Since I entered politics, I have chiefly had men's views confided to me privately, and some of the biggest men in the United States in the field of commerce and manufacture are afraid of something. They know that there is a power somewhere so organized, so subtle, so watchful, so interlocked, so complete, so pervasive that they better not speak above their breath when they speak in condemnation of it. FDR said the real truth of the matter is, and you and I both know it, that a financial element in the large centers has owned the government of the U.S. since the days of Andrew Jackson. And nothing in politics, nothing ever happens by accident. If it happens, you can bet it was planned that way. That's why I've said uh, in, the in one of the sessions, the final one today, I think, is entitled, Nothing is as it seems. Right? FDR said, remember, you're just an extra in everybody else's play. Well, he was close. I think we're just an extra in the Luciferians' play. They think they've got control of everything. And again, we understand the biblical theology behind it. We understand that the mortal wound 
was delivered at Calvary. Um, but uh, as the illustration I use in the book is the illustration of uh, a, uh, uh, say, a missionary who's living out in the jungles and he, he comes back to his hut after being out and he sticks his head inside this you know, tent and he sees a huge python has made its way into his tent. So he pulls out his sidearm and shoots it right in the head. Whereupon the python begins to writhe in pain and he steps outside while he's waiting for this noise to go silent. And as he stepped outside the door of his tent, he hears this mortally wounded python just writhing around and knocking things off of tables and knocking his bed over and knocking pots and pans around. And eventually after some time, all is quiet. And he goes in and, and drags off the dead python. Well, Satan received that mortal wound at Calvary, but he is writhing in pain and he's going to take down as many people with him along the way. And someday he's going to be cast into the everlasting lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are. But right now, for reasons known only to God, he's been given a lot of sway. Edward Bernays is another uh, person you should, should know about. Um, uh, he was an Austrian-American pioneer in the field of public relations, often referred to as the father of public relations. He wrote the book Propaganda. And um, he died in 1995. He was 104 years old. Um, but uh, he's considered one of the most 100 most influential Americans uh, by Life magazine in the 20th century. Um, he, you know, he's, his uh, many books are things like Crystallizing Public Opinion in 1923, and I mentioned Propaganda in 1928. Uh, he had many, many campaigns that uh, he was responsible for. His uncle, by the way, was Sigmund Freud, and uh, Bernays describes the masses as an irrational uh, group of people subject to herd instinct. And he talks about how you can use crowd psychology and psychoanalysis, which he got from Freud, his, his uncle, uh, uh, and psychoanalysis to control people in very different ways. So listen to what he said. The conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in a democratic society. And those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of our country. There's that word again, invisible. Another quote, there are invisible rulers who control the destinies of millions. It is not generally realized to what extent the words and actions of our most influential public men are dictated by shrewd persons operating behind the scenes. Here's uh, Supreme Court Justice Felix Frankfurter. Uh, the real rulers in Washington are invisible and exercise power from behind the scenes. And, you know, if you try to buck the system, um, you know, they'll just arkansas you and claim you had a heart attack and you're found dead in your bed with a pillow over your head at a private ranch and the coroner calls it in from 50 miles away and said, yep, it was a heart attack, never even touched the body. So just ask Scalia. Um, Zbigniew Brzezinski uh, served as the counselor to LBJ, Jimmy Carter, uh, uh, Reagan, uh, and he was a very heavily in, in, in heavy influence over decades in American policy uh, he died in 2017, but he said the regionalization is in keeping with the trilateral plan, which calls for a gradual convergence of East and West, ultimately leading toward the goal of one world government. National sovereignty is no longer a viable option. He said the technocratic era involves 
By the way, this he wrote in 1970 in his famous book, Between Two Ages. The technocratic era involves the gradual appearance of a more controlled society. Such a society would be dominated by an elite, unrestrained by traditional values. And by that he means of liberty. Soon it will be possible to assert almost continuous surveillance over every citizen and maintain up-to-date, complete files containing even the most personal information about the citizen. Those files will be subject to instantaneous retrieval by the authorities. Shortly, the public will be unable to reason or think for themselves. They'll only be able to parrot the information they've been given on the previous night's news. So these are the kind of things these people are saying, and it's in plain sight. But when they're on the, the controlled media, as I showed you yesterday, none of them ever ask them about that. You know, hey, why did you talk about, uh, in your book uh, from 1970, how people are just a bunch of useful idiots and you know, useless breeders and easily manipulated? No one ever asks them that. Why? Because it's all part of the show. It's all part of being controlled, and the media is complicit. He said, persisting social crisis, the emergence of a charismatic personality, and the exploitation of mass media to obtain public confidence would be the stepping stones in the piecemeal transformation of the United States into a highly controlled society. Now, not long before he died in 2017, he made this terrifying statement. You know, the older these guys get when they get more desperate, kind of like Klaus Schwab today, really they can taste it. They think they're so close to this long-awaited, coveted one-world system where they're in charge, uh, then the more careless they get with their words. Uh, but from a speech in London, he said, today it is infinitely easier to kill one million people than to control one million people. Oh, yeah, it's easy. We're going to talk about that in our uh, final session. Uh, just a couple more quotes, then we'll take a break. Uh, this is from Father Pedro uh, Arupi. This is from a UPI story from December 27, 1965. This conspiracy makes use of every possible means at its disposal, be they scientific, technical, social, or economic. It follows a perfectly mapped out strategy. It holds almost complete sway in international organizations and financial circles in the field of mass communication, press, cinema, radio, and television. Even modern presidents have made passing references to it. Clinton said, there's a government inside the government, and I don't control it. Of course, with Clinton, you never really knew if he meant what he said or not. <laughs> Depends on the meaning of control, I guess. I don't know. But uh, Benjamin Disraeli uh, said, the world is governed by very different personages to what is imagined by those who are not themselves behind the scenes. The government of the present day, governments of the present day have to deal not merely with other governments, but with emperors, kings, and ministers. But, but also with secret societies which have everywhere their unscrupulous agents and can at the last upset all the government plans. Rockefeller, in his memoirs, titled Memoirs, <laughs> probably paid someone six figures to come up with that title. But anyway, um, he, he said, some even believe we are part of a secret cabal working against the best interest of the United States, characterizing my family and me as internationalists and of conspiring with others around the world to build a more in integrated global political and economic structure. One world, if you will. Well, if that's the charge, I stand guilty and I'm proud of it. <laughs> kind of like Cronkite yesterday when he received, when we watched him receiving that world government award and he said, I'm, I'm, come join me here at the right hand of Satan. Ha, ha, ha. Rockefeller said, we're on the verge of a global transformation. All we need is the right major crisis, and the nations will accept the new world order, right? 
He said, the world is now more sophisticated and prepared to march towards a world government. The sup Listen to this. This ought to chill you to the bone. The supranational sovereignty of an intellectual elite and world bankers is surely preferable to the national auto-determination practiced in past centuries. But we don't need this national sovereignty stuff. Just trust us. We know what we're doing. Henry Kissinger said, today, if America, today America would be outraged if UN troops entered Los Angeles to restore order. Tomorrow, they will be grateful. This is especially true if they were told, notice how he words this, they were told that there was an outside threat from beyond, whether real or promulgated, false flags, that threatened our very existence. It is then that the peoples of the world will plead to deliver them from this evil. The one thing every man fears is the unknown. When presented with this scenario, individual rights will be willingly relinquished for the guarantee of their well-being granted to them by the world government. So let's, uh, let's stop there uh, for now. I had hoped to get into some of the fake news and censorship, but we will do that after the break. So let's take a break and come back in about five or ten minutes.